0: Good morning. Today we are moving on to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We are skipping a small part of chapter 7, but it's essentially a recap of what Paul already taught in that chapter. Chapter 8 begins a lengthy section in the letter where Paul addresses the issue of Christian liberty. This is still that part of the book where Paul is answering questions from the Corinthians themselves. From the answer that Paul gives in chapter 8, it appears that the question was something like this. Is it lawful for us as Christians to eat meat sacrificed to idols? That concept probably needs to be elaborated on, given that we don't have an exact parallel in our culture. In the ancient world, families would bring animals to the pagan temples. The animal would be sacrificed. Part of the animal would be used as a burnt offering on the altar. Some would go to the priest to sustain them. And the rest of the animal would be returned to the family. Often that meat would be sold in the marketplace, or the family would have a feast. So the question would be, can a Christian with a clear conscience attend such a feast or eat the meat that had been sacrificed to an idol? Paul does not give a yes or no answer. Instead, he will enter into a lengthy dialogue about how Christians ought to use their freedom. So the question is not, am I free to eat the meat sacrificed to an idol? The question is, how will my decision to eat meat sacrificed to an idol "...affect those around me." Listen as I read 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 13. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possesses knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possesses this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, the brother for whom Christ died thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak you sin against Christ therefore if food makes my brother stumble i will never eat meat lest i make my brother stumble the beginning of paul's answer in verses 1 through 3 is fascinating and instructive but it is also essential to his argument this is seen because he in verse 4 he begins with the word therefore What he says, beginning in verse 4, is rooted in the truths of verses 1 through 3. In verse 1, Paul says, as it relates to the question of food offered to idols, that we all possess knowledge. Paul is probably quoting the Corinthians themselves with this word about knowledge. This puts a slightly different spin on the way the question about food was being asked by the Corinthians. There was probably a contingency that insisted they were allowed to eat and that those who refused were either foolish or sinful. Paul doesn't deny their claim that they are free to eat meat. However, he does say that knowledge puffs up. Yes, they may be correct in that they are free to eat meat sacrificed to an idol, but that knowledge had made them arrogant and unloving. Love, however, Paul says, doesn't puff up, love builds up. Paul would rather that they have love than have knowledge that puffs them up. Paul states that the one who imagines that they know don't know as they ought. Wisdom seeks to love, not simply to know. The one who loves, in particular the one who loves God, is known by God, and that is a far greater blessing than simply being able to eat meat sacrificed to an idol. Verses four through six, Paul outlines the content of this knowledge he and they are talking about. In this section, he says what we know about meat sacrificed to idols, and what we know about idols themselves. First, he states that the idols don't have any real existence, and thus are not to be feared or thought to possess any power over us. This is similar to what the psalmist says in Psalm one fifteen, verses four through eight. He says. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. By contrast to the idols, Paul says that there is one God, Paul recognizes that the world may claim allegiance to all sorts of gods and lords, but we know that there is only one true God. Paul includes in his description of God the person of Jesus Christ, which affirms the Trinitarian view of God. And he says this about the one true God. All things are from him. He is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-encompassing. And, Paul says, we exist for him. This is what the Westminster Catechism was trying to capture when it declared that our life was designed to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is why we are here. That is our purpose. If Paul stopped here, the message would be, Sure, eat the meat sacrificed to idols. It's no big deal since we know that the idols don't exist. You are not eating meat that was actually consecrated to another god, since there is no other god. That is knowledge. What Paul will command is love. Paul closes out chapter 8 by revealing the way of love. Paul says that not everyone possesses the knowledge that those who have no problem with eating meat sacrificed to idols have. But it goes further than that. Paul says that some used to eat meat as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and that meat still carries with it that association. The result is that their conscience, being weak, is defiled by the thought of eating meat sacrificed to an idol. Paul isn't saying that this kind of weakness is okay, and he certainly taught in such a way so as to strengthen the weaker brother but he didn't think it wise or loving for a believer to flaunt their freedom in the face of a weaker brother. He then says that food does not commend us to God, and our condition is not changed by eating or not eating. God does not take pride in our strength of conscience when we are able to do without hesitation something that someone else cannot do because their conscience forbids it but God does care if we use our freedom to become a stumbling block for the weak. Paul says that the weak brother may see the strong brother eating in an idol's temple and be encouraged to do the same. But that person cannot eat in the same way because their conscience will accuse them and they will be ill at ease. They will think of themselves as sinning against God. Paul says that the knowledge of the Christian of the Corinthians, excuse me, destroys their brother. In other words, they had knowledge, but not love. And Paul reminds them that this is a brother for whom Christ died. Paul will then give them the bottom line. If we flaunt our freedom at the expense of our weaker brother, we sin against that brother, wound the conscience of the weak, and sin against Christ. Paul reveals to them, Finally, at the end of chapter 8, his own personal standard. He says, if food makes his brother stumble, he will never eat meat. Love trumps knowledge and personal freedom. This is the essence of true righteousness. In his commentary on Proverbs, Bruce Watke says something that I believe fits perfectly here. He said this, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to the advantage of the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. We don't face the same decision about meat sacrifice to idols, but that does not mean that Paul's words are irrelevant. We all need to be mindful that we are not living in such a way so as to be a stumbling block for our brother for whom Christ died. Be grateful for your knowledge and your freedom but never let those take precedence over love. This week, the GCL has asked us to pray for Jessica Gumbert, Dirk Russell, that's me, Sherry Daniel, Leslie Turnbow, and Annette Garcia. So join with me as we pray. Father, we are grateful that you have loved us first and that our love is only a, a reflection of the love that you have shown to us. I pray that we don't become a stumbling block uh, to our brothers in Christ, but that we seek to build one another up, to encourage and to strengthen one another. You have heard the names of the teachers and faculty members and coaches that we laid before you, and we pray that you would bless them in their work, that you would equip them to do the work that you have called them to do in Christ Jesus. And that in all things, they would bring glory and honor to you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.